Awesome. Thank you. I don't know if I'm going to, we'll see. This is all right. I think we'll go ahead. And if you would take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter four, Jonah chapter four, I'd, uh, give you more explanation to find that little book in your Old Testament, except for I know you guys have been in it, and so uh, hopefully some of your pages are a little dog-eared and it kind of opens to it. But Jonah chapter 4, um, we'll, we'll go ahead and read just the text, it's short, and then we'll kind of jump in. Is there a bell that's going to ring on me, right? Is that my warning? Okay. I'll try to be mindful. Not that you guys want to get to class, right? Jonah chapter 4. But it, deplete, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This morning, uh, it sounds like you guys have been a bit on a break. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's too much to say, and it's not out of a sense of uh, urgency or, or personal pride that I think I would argue that what we're going to look at this morning may be the most important thing that you start to think about uh, this year. Now, how do I say something that bold? And it's because as you look at Jonah, we are shocked. At his response to God being what everyone wants him to be. But it's really going to be the character issue of Jonah's life. And the way that the book kind of funnels to this moment. That is going to bring, I think, extreme insight for you. Not just for today, but for the rest of your life. And because it's going to teach you that God cares more about the kind of person you are then about the kind of ministry you are potentially Lord willing going to have one day. If you kind of been aware and maybe you've heard your parents talk, uh, there was a famous apologetic uh, apologist, a guy who spent his life defending the faith, Christianity, went to universities and would defend Christianity against atheism, would defend creation. Uh, who died last year, and it came out in a, in a big kind of reveal, Christianity Today, that his actual life was completely inconsistent with his public ministry. And the lie that I think that apologist believed, that he believed, was that God cared more about his big international ministry than he cared about his character, that he cared about what kind of person he was, because that's the only way you get to this life where you say one thing, and I know the temptation is here because you go to a Christian school where you're encouraged to say, I love Jesus, but then to actually know in your heart that you do not love him, 
that when you're not here, when you're at home, when you're in the weekends, you actually live completely different than all your teachers or your, your friends would suspect. And it's easy because the human side wants to say, and you might even think pragmatically, well, of course, it was God needed this person to uh, have influence. He needed this person's intellect to go into the university to preach the gospel, to defend him. But that's a lie. God does not need us to defend himself. He does use us, but you need to learn that he cares far more about you and what kind of person you are than he does about what kind of ministry you have. So if you leave this place, and by that I mean graduate, uh, Lord willing, and you end up never leaving the town of Central City or Aurora or whatever you're from. Most of these are smaller towns in the U.S. That he's not as concerned about that. Not as concerned about uh, whether you, you stay here and, and you work a 9 to 5. Um, or if you end up being an international uh, evangelist like a Billy Graham. His greater concern is what kind of person you are. And honestly, where that becomes so powerful is as you are making decisions in your life, it's not so much that God is, is concerned about exactly where you should, for you seniors, go to college or, or what job you should take. Scripture is clear that he cares more about the kind of person that you are. Now, what does this all have to do with Jonah? If you look at the book of Jonah, the surprising thing about it is that it is, it is really an interaction between two people. And they're not the ones you'd think. The big crowd, the big city, the influential thing going on in the background is this great Assyrian city of Nineveh. But yet the story is driven by the king and the god of the universe and a man not well known from a small nation of Israel named Jonah. And if lest you think the whole point of this book is that God would evangelize the nation of Nineveh, I think that's an important part of it. Chapter 4 lets you know that there's something more going on here and that he really cares. You've seen it already as you've worked through this book because you've seen it in chapter 1 how he really cares whether Jonah is obedient or not, so much that he is going to, in essence, chase him with a storm and make him turn around and go to Nineveh. He cares so much about Jonah and his response that he actually calls the, the great fish to swallow him. And he cares so much about Jonah that he shows compassion and mercy by allowing him to uh, repent and to then go on and then fulfill the ministry calling in chapter 3 that was to preach this repentance, that they would repent. And, of course, Jonah preaches this good news in the Old Testament sense. And they respond. They say in chapter 3, verse 9, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And that's exactly what God does. Verse 10, And when God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not 
do it. They deserve judgment, punishment, destruction, but yet they called out and asked God to be merciful. They repented, and God chose to show mercy, compassion, and forgiveness. Now, the issue in the arc of our story is that is where the book would normally end. That, that's where the movie kind of starts to close the curtain and, and the lights come down because you would expect, hooray, happy ending. But that's not the point of Jonah. That's not the point of the book. And we're going to get led into this conversation now that is shocking. So if you think about this as, as a story and a narrative, and it's kind of got this, this classic bill, which it just our lives have it too. Um, but you have the setting in, in chapter 1, sets us up. What, what's this story about? And you go, okay, there, here's God calling Jonah to do this work do this ministry, and Jonah says, no, thank you, I'm out. We don't know why yet. We find out here in four why he runs, but we just know he runs. And then the rest of the book is you're trying to figure out why in the world is he running from God? Why is he running from this, this job? And so we don't really know. We just start to go, there, there, there's a tension that's building, right? There, there's, there's a, they call it in, in kind of uh, literature a, a rising action. There is conflict, like What's going to happen? Is Jonah going to live? Now, you may know the story, of course, right? You pay attention to Sunday school. But think about it as never having read the story. Is Jonah going to live? Is Jonah going to die? There's a massive storm. So imagine you're watching this as a movie, and you don't know the ending. And he's on a ship, and there's a great storm. And he's all of a sudden, they decide, let's throw this guy overboard. And then a huge fish comes out of nowhere and swallows him. And you're going, what just happened? And then you're wondering, well, how could he survive that? And, of course, God intervenes, and he's vomited back up. And now you're going, well, he's going to preach this message. Are they going to listen? I don't know. And so it kind of, I would say the climax of the story really climaxes in he does what he was called to do in the very beginning, and they repent. And you're going, wow. But what's shocking is where the... The, the next kind of twist and turn is Jonah is not only not happy about it, he's angry about it. Not only is he angry, he is angry at God. And he, in essence, says, God, you are wicked and wrong for what you have done. It's amazing. This kind of story makes it into the Bible. But I think it's one of those stories that makes you realize even more that the truth of scripture because God actually doesn't need to cover up all the inconsistency and warts of humanity. In fact, he wants us to see them and come face to face with the most difficult questions of which a lot rise out of this. One of the questions, if you think of, speaking of apologetics ministry, um, that you're going to get often asked of well, if you're a Christian, well, how can you be a Christian? Because I don't believe there's God because if there was a God, and he was good, how could he let bad things happen? And so classically, you know, it's been called the problem of evil. And you need to form that response now because you're going to get asked it the rest of your life. It comes up and over and over in ministry. And, and why does this bad thing happen to even Christians? But that's not Jonah's problem. We're going to see Jonah's problem is kind of the opposite. There's a C.S. Lewis, familiar with him. He wrote a book, The Problem of Pain. Another theologian later wrote a book, which I found just as interesting, called The Problem of 
pleasure. And what he did is he looked at the other side of the coin and said, there, there's this issue of, of if there's a God in the universe, how does he allow bad things to happen? But there's another issue. If God is perfect and holy um, and we are sinful, why in the world does he allow anything good? Why does he allow us to enjoy pleasures? Why does he allow the wicked in that sense during this life life to prosper? And so he looks at the question that way, and that's closer to Jonah's problem. Jonah's problem here in chapter 4 is not so much that God lets bad things happen. His problem is fascinating because it's that God does forgive. And we're going to see it's completely inconsistent and it's really hypocritical of Jonah here. I want to do a little bit of work first, though. Um, so turn back to 2 Kings 14, 25. I'm not sure how much you guys have discussed some of these things. But let's, let's try to get a context for, for Jonah and why his response is not, praise the Lord, the nation got saved. And it is actually anger and frustration and bitterness towards God. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, it would seem the prophet Jonah is this same prophet that prophesies under the reign of Jeroboam II. He's going to be a contemporary with another prophet, Hosea. And this will give us some insight. And I think now, before you say, I can't believe how wicked and bad Jonah is, this will maybe allow us to identify with him and relate to him a bit and go, oh, I, I know this feeling. So Jeroboam was not a good king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But yet we're going to see he did, God, during the reign of Jeroboam II, some good and kind things. Not because of the king, but because God had compassion on his people. So look at uh, 2 Kings 14, verse 24, and it says, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. But, verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. And so even though he's wicked, there's this the restoration of that border. Some good things happen during the reign. And it's not because the king, we find in verse 26, it's because the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel for under heaven, and so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That's its own fascinating story because God actually uses a wicked king to accomplish his purposes. Even the wicked king can't ultimately bring destruction to Israel because God has made a covenant and a promise with them. And that's that steadfast love that he has for his people. But Jonah actually is involved in prophesying good things. So imagine, I don't know what the best analogy, um, it's always a bit tenuous to compare America with, with Israel, but, but just imagine kind of that loyalty that comes with the nation that you're a part of or the state that you're a part of, or maybe better, in your, the team that you are a part of. And there's a desire when you're on a certain team that you don't want the other team to do well, Right. And, and for, for Jonah, this is the other team. This is the most wicked 
other team because Nineveh is part of Assyria. It's a great city in Assyria. And why that matters is because while Jonah's prophesying that the Lord is going to be kind to Israel under Jeroboam's reign, at the same time, you have Hosea, another prophet, another book of your Bible, who is prophesying that Israel has sinned and is, although the Lord is not going to blot them out forever, they are going to face the judgment that they were promised in Deuteronomy 28 of their disobedience. And Israel is going to get carried off into captivity. And they're going to get carried off into captivity by Assyria. Now, I think Jonah knows this. So Jonah's got a couple things running in the background in his head. He hates Assyria because of who they are. He hates them because of their wickedness. But he also knows it's been prophesied that Assyria will come conquer and enslave his people, his team. So maybe you can go, okay, now I kind of understand his anger towards them, his frustration. He, he doesn't want them, God, he wants God to destroy them. And, you know, maybe if God destroys them, he'll even, you know, Israel will repent and he'll relent there. And, you know, with all the things going on in, in his mind. And that kind of lets us know that this hatred of Assyria is deep and rooted in his understanding of their, I think, future role in the destruction of the northern kingdom that comes really not too far in 2 Kings, just a couple after chapters after 2 Kings 14. And so coming back to Jonah chapter 4, these four short, four short verses, that's going to help inform us that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It's Hebrew's best way of trying to say he was really, really, really mad. It displeased him exceedingly, and he was angry. And so he prays to the Lord, and he says, Lord, is this what I said? Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? And he's almost saying to the Lord, I knew exactly what you were going to do from the beginning. I told you that's why I didn't want to do it. Get somebody else. And now you made me do it, in essence, although I, I think there seems to be some willfulness post-fish in chapter uh, 2 and 3. And he is frustrated. And he explains for the first time in the whole book, that's the number one reason I ran. He says, that's why I made haste to flee Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And to the extreme, he in essence says, I am so frustrated, I am so angry, it's not worth living. And so he says in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, if you were to look at this on its face and your initial reaction is, this is a foolish man, I think that's right. But it's also insightful. It's insightful because the temptation is true for us. We see, number one, that God is caring more about Jonah as a person. In other words, he doesn't want Jonah just to be the evangelist. He doesn't want Jonah just to be the one who's preaching the Bible or, or, or preaching the gospel or good news. 
he actually wants Jonah to be the right kind of person. He wants Jonah to be someone who actually reflects God himself. And that Jonah would learn to be compassionate and loving and kind, even towards his enemies. Because when I say compassion and kind, it's not that hard for some people. When I show compassion and I show kindness, if you guys looked and saw my four boys, the older two are getting a little tougher, but those, those little two, my four-year-old and my, my newborn, are adorable. And my four-year-old in particular is, is, is cute as all get out. It is not hard for me to show compassion to him because I'm his father, I love him, and he's just a bundle of joy and fun to be around. But just because you've been able to show love and compassion to someone you care about, to a friend, uh, to someone who you get along with easy, that doesn't mean you are actually growing into the right kind of person that God wants you to grow into when then when you see an enemy or someone you dislike, someone that has wronged you, and you do not show compassion or kindness or forgiveness to them. Personally, I can remember uh, feeling this sense of judgment on my own heart in that uh, I, I pastor a church, and so, you know, I know you guys might find it hard to believe, but not everyone loves me. Not everyone is like, you're the best. Um, there are people who go, uh, we don't like you and all those things. And I can remember telling my wife one night, because I'm a talker and that I, I kind of talk things out, and so I'm chatting with her and describing a situation, uh, just a frustration with, with an individual um, who is clearly in the wrong, who has sinned against me, actually sinned against a lot of different people. Um, and there's a lot of people going, this person has ruined a lot of people's lives. Now, maybe that's a bit strong, but it sure feels like that. And I'm just getting kind of frustrated about it and thinking, in my heart, I want justice. I want this person to get what's coming to them. I want them to be judged. I want them to fail in life and all those things. And I know you maybe pastors shouldn't think that way. Uh, I'm growing too. Uh, but my wife, who's godlier than me, I remember looking at her and she said, we should really pray for him. Uh, we should really pray for his family. And, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if, if the Lord maybe could use this situation for them if they're not believers to get saved? And, of course, as, as guilt kind of, is, you know, I'm walking a little bit low and feeling pretty guilty, like you, you were right. Um, that actually is the right response. And, oh, by the way, that's exactly what God has done for us. And that's really what Jonah doesn't see here. Because flip back to chapter 3 of Jonah, really the end of chapter 2, and this is extremely hypocritical. Is Jonah repentant right away? No, he is disobedient and defiant in the same, maybe not as quote-unquote the way he views it as wicked, but he's defiant disobedient, just like the Assyrians, yet God says, I'm not done with you, Jonah, and God pursues him. When he's in the belly of the great fish and he is thinking, I am going to die, and he calls out for God, show me mercy and let me live. And he says, verse 9 of chapter 2, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay 
And he cries out, salvation belongs to the Lord. And I grant you, it's not just a few pages forward. I mean, it's probably maybe a few days or weeks or whatever. Fast forward. And here he is so angry that God treated Assyria the exact way God treated him. And so God asks the question in verse 4. Do you do well to be angry? And it really is kind of a section here um, with that ending with that question, because then it kind of describes an illustration, um, which would be great to get into, but we're going to leave that for the next speaker. But that question just kind of hangs out there in the air for you to answer, for me to answer, is Jonah right? And as you look at the story, you go, no, he even based on just this short little book of the Bible, Jonah cannot, if he thinks about it, mean what he thinks he means. Could he not have compassion in the same way that God has had compassion? He doesn't, as um, preachers have often said, he doesn't really want God to be just. He thinks he does, right? He wants God to be just. Punish evil, punish sin. But we understand if God was just, then he would save no one because no one deserves to be saved. And so in that way, he really doesn't want what he is, is asking for. But we understand the feeling and we can look at our own hearts. We can see the same desire. Perhaps you have a sibling that has wronged you. That's probably a better illustration for the next group, the younger kids. I'm sure there's a little more warring at those ages with the, with the siblings. Um, but I'm also sure at the high school level, um, cliques and factions happen all the time. And there are kind of, you have your own little cliques and, and people who are perhaps that have wronged you. They've spoken lies about you. They've mischaracterized you. And you have that initial gut reaction that Jonah has had as well. And you want them to get what they deserve. Perhaps it's it's a rival of school we were talking a little bit about um, back when I was here and in high school and a school that's not really in the same sense, I don't think, a rival. Um, but man, we, we just hated that team. We, I didn't care who they were playing. I just hoped they'd lose. And they cheated and they cheap shot you and you just go, man, I just hope something bad happens to them. Kind of an illustration to think about is if you see someone walking in to um, you walk into a restaurant like a Taco Bell and they're eating food and you walk by and your gut reaction is. You see him eating. I hope they choke on that taco. I had a professor, Hispanic guy who would always talk like that. And he says, they just hope they choke on their taco. If that's your reaction. Then you understand what it's to be like Jonah. And God does not want Jonah to sit in that sinful reaction. And he does not want us to sit in that sinful reaction either. He wants to show us that he desires for us to reflect these characteristics of himself in Christ. That we should reflect God's compassion. And it's not just for friends. That's easy. But it's for even enemies.
We all face the same temptation, but rather we are called to reflect God's character. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. As you turn there and you think about Jonah's story, you think about those short four verses, and you think about how they're placed there. Again, God is not done just with the salvation of the large city. He, he cares about Jonah and his heart just as he cares about each one of your hearts. And he cares ultimately, and I think this is the same message Jesus is getting after in the Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 5, 6, and 7 of, of Matthew. Because he's got a group of listeners, right, that are the definition of hypocrisy, not maybe in the way we think of hypocrites. See, the Pharisees, you might think a hypocrite is someone who says one thing and does another. Um, they yell at you for doing something, or you, maybe your parents, you think, hey, like, they say I can't say these words, but then they say these words. Those are, that's, a, that's a hypocrite. Well, that's true. But in the Pharisee sense, the hypocrisy of the, of the Pharisee is that they actually do the right thing. They say the right thing. They do all the public actions. They're, they get they get A's in class, and they do the right thing, but they're doing it with the wrong heart, right? They're doing it with the wrong internal motivation. They're not reflecting God's character because they are fractured souls. They're not whole. They're not complete. They say they love God, but that they don't love their enemies. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, I think this applies well to Jonah's situation because what you see is an illustration in Jonah and apart from Christ and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I don't know how you could have any other natural response than Jonah's. And when Jesus in chapter 5 verse 43 is calling for greater righteousness, he does so by using that kind of language to say it's not just that you should love your enemy or love your neighbor excuse me but you should also love your enemy so look at that real briefly as we close he says you have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but i say to you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's a pretty good reason. We often see that in the Sermon on the Mount. There's these because. It's just the way it's, the way it's kind of written. I think it's in the, the vein of wisdom language of, of the Proverbs. And live like this, and you shall have life. For he says, he makes, that is God, his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? In other words, if you just love people you like and are easy to get along with, how are you different than anyone else? Because even the wicked do that. And if you greet, verse 47, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Just saying hi to your friends, and you're, you're not looking for someone who does not have a friend. You're not looking to reach out and be kind. He says, do not even the Gentiles do the same? And there's this little phrase, he says, quoting 
says, you therefore must be perfect as your father or heavenly father is perfect. And we don't have time to dissect all that the Sermon on the Mount is moving to. I think the better understanding of perfect there um, is, is actually wholeness or completeness. And I think the point of the Sermon on the Mount is driving that Jesus is trying to communicate to them that it is the whole person. And so there's all kinds of words that the, the idea of, of the heart, which we think of as emotion, but in their culture, they, they would understand it more of the mind. So when you see heart, it's not just kind of emotional feels. Um, in scripture, the heart represents the person, the whole person, the mind, the kind of control center. And he's saying, you need to be consistent. You need to be whole. So in this context of the kingdom citizen, and we understand that how do you enter that kingdom? It is through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you call yourself a Christian, then you need to live whole as your heavenly father is whole. You need to live a life that is consistent, not a duplicitous life where you live one way and when people aren't looking and you live another way when they are looking. That you don't get up like Jonah and you're easy to, to do what's expected and you can do the preaching, but yet at the same time your heart is all messed up. I don't think it's the call for perfection that some people make out in verse 48, although uh, we understand that is we are called to be perfect in the sense that uh, we have to have perfect righteousness. And oh, by the way, we don't have that. And therefore, we need Christ's perfect righteousness for us on our behalf. But it serves as a picture with Jonah to say he desires for us, if you are in Christ, to show compassion, to reflect his nature, to be the right kind of person who is whole, who is consistent, that understands if God has been so loving and so gracious to respond when you cry out in faith, Lord, forgive me. I repent of my sin. I turn to you. And he has forgiven you. How can you not do the same for others? Some of you perhaps have strict parents uh, who, who maybe uh, kind of give you the look of, hey, there's a certain way to act. There's a right way to act. Um, I definitely, my parents were, were somewhat like that. My, my grandfather in particular was a very strict, fastidious man. And he, he gave me a look often that it was expected of me to act a certain way because I was his grandson. Um, and you don't act, you know like a wild, rambunctious child, which I was uh, around him because you're my grandson and that means you need to act a certain way. And he would say, if he was using Christian language, something to this effect. Um, if you're going to profess to be a Christian, then you should act like one. If you're going to say, and I've got little boys right now, eight-year-old working with us too, it's hard, and by nature, we're continuing to mature into this, but understand the goal is to be whole and to be this person who isn't accepting forgiveness but not extending forgiveness, and realize that the Lord calls us to show compassion because he showed it to us, and it means we show it not only to friends, but we show it to enemies, especially because that shows that you're not like everyone else, that your heart has been truly changed, 
you're truly in Christ. And he says, you reflect that you are true sons of your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, even such a short passage, Lord, we see Jonah throughout the book running from you. It makes no sense, yet we can see his heart understood your character, but was unhappy that you show grace even to those that sometimes our hearts do not want you to extend grace to. But yet we understand as we look at that, oh, how thankful we are that you have shown grace and kindness, Lord, to each, uh, to those of us in Christ that uh, while, as it says, we were still yet sinners, while we were still yet enemies running from you, you sent Christ, Lord, to live and die for us. And so we rejoice in that truth, and we desire for that to change our hearts, that we might be men and women who live consistent lives. That we would not accept your forgiveness and grace and yet not distribute it to those around us. But particularly, Lord, we know your grace is most evident, Lord, when we are most weakest and when we are most challenged, Lord, when we are called to love as Jesus said, even our enemies. And so we ask that by the the power of your spirit, Lord, that we yet understand the questions Jonah asks, the anger that Jonah expresses, but by your grace and the power of your spirit, Lord, may we reject that fleshly response and live by the power of your spirit. And Lord, not only loving neighbors, but Lord, even recognizing Lord, that you have called us to love even our enemies. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.